Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. We'll read this for context and then we'll pray again. Luke 1, 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the, come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when he saw him, she was troubled at this saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that holy one who is to be born will be called the son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren, for with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. Father, thank you for your word this morning, and I ask now that you'd open our ears that we could hear what you're saying to each and every one of us as your bride, Lord, your church. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people pray. Amen. Amen. I want to take a little bit of a diversion this morning. I want to take you back, if you will. Look back at verse 27. Actually, verse 26, it says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed. You might want to underline that in your Bible. Betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. I'm going to take a little bit of a diversion on a topic this morning that I came to last week and I didn't have time for it, but I want to look at it this morning because I think it holds some real implications for us as believers and as the bride of Christ, the church. And that word is betrothed. You see, at this point in our account here in Luke, as the angel appears to Mary, she is betrothed to Joseph. Now, betrothal was a part of the marriage process in Israel, but unlike marriage today in our country or in civilization as we're used to it, uh, we have an engagement period generally, sometimes short, sometimes long. There's no specified time that it needs to be, but we have an engagement period that is then followed by the wedding ceremony and it's all done and complete. But it isn't that way with ancient Israel and the wedding process. It was a process and it involved a lot of elements to it. And I want to take a look at some of those today because I think it's important to our understanding of the picture that that the scriptures paint for us of the relationship that we have with Christ as his bride and really the prophetic implications that are implied by it all. First of all, the betrothal, the word that we've just come to in here. The betrothal was the first stage of the wedding process, and it was the phase where the agreement to marry was made. In in this phase, the groom prepared what was called a ketubah. 
a ketubah, which was basically a marriage co- uh, contract or a covenant, at which he presented to the bride-to-be and, and to her father. The father played a role in all of this. And so he presented it to both. But included in that ketubah, that marriage contract, was the bride price, which was expected and given to compensate the, the, young, uh, the young woman's parents for the cost of raising her, as well as serving as an expression of the groom-to-be's commitment to his future bride. Now, at this point in the process, the groom and his future bride, they remained sexually pure. They didn't consummate the marriage yet. That had not taken place. The contract, though, that he made with her was binding. Once she entered into it, it was binding, and it could only be undone by legal divorce and on proper grounds. For example, finding out that your bride-to-be was impure. Hmm, that's going to take on some meaning as we look further into the account of Luke in the coming weeks. Then, after the betrothal, part of this process was something called the cup. The cup. Now, to see if the proposal was accepted, the young man would pour a cup of wine for his beloved and wait to see if she drank it. And if she drank this cup that was offered to her, and note that this cup that was offered to her was symbolically representing a blood covenant. No, they didn't drink blood, but like we do with communion, it was designed to represent a blood covenant that was binding. If she took that cup and drank from it, it meant that she had accepted the proposal of marriage that he was making to her, that she accepted the contract, and that she was entering into this covenant with him. At this point, they would be officially betrothed which is where Mary is in the story and the account of Luke. Now, following the cup, gifts would be given. The gifts would be given. Once the wedding offer was accepted and the groom entered into the betrothal phase with his bride, he would then give gifts to her to personally uh, reflect the fact that he loved her and that he was making this commitment to her. And most importantly, to remind her of his love and commitment to her during this betrothal period, during which, by the way, he's going to not be with her. He's going to be separated from her for about a year And so he wanted to remind her and have these things as a significant reminder that they were betrothed and that he had made a commitment to her as he went to prepare for the marriage. And then following the gifts, you had something called the mikvah. Now, the mikvah, this is a cleansing bath. The the bride would next partake of the mikvah. This cleansing bath. Now, mikvah is the same word that we use that comes that we derive the same word for baptism in the New Testament scriptures. Interesting. And to this day, in conservative Judaism, a bride cannot marry without submitting to the mikvah or this cleansing. If you have decided to go to Israel with us, or if you're interested in going to Israel with us in November of 2021, if you want more information on that, just get a hold of us and I can get it to you. But we're going to be going there. And one of the things you'll see there are these ritual baths that existed in some of the ancient ruins that were the mikvahs. And, and it had to do with more than the wedding, but the wedding utilized this, the mikvah was the cleansing bath, the place where she took this cleansing bath. And then beyond the mikvah, there was the preparing of a place, the preparing of a place. Now, during the betrothal period, the bridegroom would leave the bride and he would return to his father's house where he would prepare a wedding chamber or a special room for the honeymoon. 
And the wedding chamber had to be a beautiful place and where he was going to bring his bride there and they were going to spend a period of time together. In fact, a seven day period of time in special intimacy alone, getting to know each other, consummating the marriage, spending time together. And, and so he wanted this to be a beautiful place and he spent his time working on this. But also note that this wedding chamber, this room had to be built to the father's specification, to the groom's father's specification. The groom could only, in fact, go and retrieve his bride and bring her back to this room when the father decided that everything was ready and the timing was right. And he said, now you can go get her. If the bridegroom, in fact, was asked at any point in time uh, when the wedding would be, when the formal wedding would be, when he would have his bride, he would say, it is not for me to know, only my father knows. That's interesting, isn't it? Because we've heard those words elsewhere. And I hope you're already beginning to see the picture that's being painted for us through this ritual. And then following the preparing of the place, there was the waiting bride's consecration. The wedding bride's consecration. So while the bridegroom is off preparing the wedding chamber, the bride is considered to be consecrated or set apart or, or bought with a price, if you will. If she went out, what she would do is she'd wear a veil so that people would know that she was betrothed. They would see her and that she, they would know that she was obligated to someone. And during this time, she'd also personally prepare herself for the marriage. With, with money that she'd saved all of her life, she would go out and she'd buy special perfumes and, and expensive cosmetics and she'd learn to apply them to make herself more beautiful for the bridegroom. And since she wouldn't know when the groom was going to come for her, she would continually make herself ready in anticipation of his return. And since it was generally customary for the bridegroom to return at, at some point during the middle of a night to steal her away, if you will... The bride would have a lamp as well that she would keep filled with oil and continually lit and ready at all times. And her sisters and her bridemaids would also be waiting, keeping their lamps trimmed in anticipation of the late night festivities when they would come. Again, pictures I hope you're beginning to make connections with. And then next would come the bridegroom's return for the bride. Now, when the bridegroom's father deemed the wedding chamber ready, the father would tell the bridegroom that all was ready and to get his bride. And the bridegroom would then go quickly and literally steal away his bride secretly like a thief in the night and take her to the wedding chamber, which he had been preparing for her. And as the bridegroom approached the bride's home, he would shout and blow the shofar. Now, the shofar is that big ram's a horn made out of a ram's horn. And they blow that and it'd make that noise. And, and so he would blow that. That would be signaled so that she had some warning to gather her belongings to take into the wedding chamber with her. And he and his friends would then come into the bride's house and he'd get his bride and her bridesmaids and he'd steal her away. And then in doing that, he'd take her back to that chamber that had been prepared. And there, next, they would spend seven days in that wedding chamber. The bridegroom would take his bride back to that chamber that he prepared for. They'd spend the seven days secluded away together. And, and, and the friends of the bridegroom, they'd wait outside the door of the wedding chamber while the marriage was consummated. And once the consummation was complete, the bridegroom would tell his friend through the door and the friend would announce it to the assembled guests, at which point the guests would celebrate for seven days until the bride and bridegroom would then emerge from the wedding chamber together. And then came the marriage supper. 
That was next. Then came the marriage supper. After seven days in the wedding chamber, the bride and the bridegroom would emerge and they'd participate in a feast with the friends and with the family. And this was a time of joyous celebration and feasting that concluded the wedding celebration. And after that was over, the bride and her groom, they would depart to their new home. No, not the room that had been prepared, the wedding chamber, not to that room that he'd been preparing where they just spent the seven days, but to their new home, a home that he had prepared just for the two of them, a home that wouldn't be in the father's home. And so they would leave the, the marriage supper and they would go to that place that he had prepared for them to live together. Now, I hope that you see these connections because they are absolutely incredible. As I was sharing with the group this morning, you know, I, I just, the Bible to me is so very real. And the reason it, it just speaks so loudly of truth is because of things like this. The, these, these truths that are buried in the scriptures themselves, that if you understand the scriptures and you understand the culture in which time they were written, and you understood some of these things, you see these connections and suddenly it brings all of scripture to life and you just see the truth of it. Follow with me and I think you'll see that this morning. The marriage covenant and the bride price, which was all a part of that, right? The marriage covenant and the bride price, that first part of the betrothal stage that took place. Well, think about this. Jesus Christ came to the home of his bride, right? He came here to earth, to our home, to present a marriage contract to us, to present a marriage contract to us. And the marriage contract that he offered is the new covenant. What we have come to know today is the new covenant, which he provides for the forgiveness of sins for those who will receive his offer. And then he offers a bride price with his life. He offered the bride price, his very life. At the Last Supper, when he was breaking bread with his disciples, he spoke of the price that he was about to pay for them. Listen, he said this in Luke 22 and verse 20. Luke 22 and verse 20, likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. The bride price. He's offering the bride price. And the bride price is his blood that was shed on Calvary's cross. He was offering it to his disciples and he offers it to you and to me today. He's made that bride price. He's paid it. But who has he paid it to? He's paid it to the Father. He's paid it to the Father. He's paid the price that was needed to free us from our sins. You see, Hebrews 9.15 as well, as, as a number of other scriptures, also proclaims and makes clear that the price for the bride was paid by Jesus Christ himself. Hebrews 9.15 Hebrews 9.15 says, And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Did you just hear that? The mediator, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant by means of his death on the cross, shed blood for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. He's made a new contract with us and he's paid the bride price for us through his own life, his own death, you see. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 6 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul speaks of the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20 even says it so clearly. He says, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You were bought at a price. The bride price was paid for you and for me. We brought it a price. You know, I, I, as I reflect on that verse, that verse has had 
impacted my life maybe more than any other in the sense that I realized that what I am today and who I am today and, and, and what I now offer to the Lord is because of the price that he's paid for me, this, this price that he's offered for me. You know, I, I grew up in, in a lot of different churches when I came to Christ growing up in my faith, and, and some had, had really just emphasized all the do's and the don'ts and the things I should do and shouldn't do, and all of the, the lists on the wall, you could just, they're numerous, you know, and all, you know, with scriptural backings. But all of the being told, don't do, don't do, or do this, or don't do that, never really changed my thinking or my way of living so much so as this verse and understanding what Christ has done for me. When I understood the, the price that he paid for me, it changed everything. The more I thought about that, the more all of the do's and the don'ts of being told those things became irrelevant because I didn't need to be told. I didn't need to be told anymore. Because when I look at my scriptures and I see something where he describes the kind of life that he desires for me, my immediate thought goes to the fact that he's paid a price for me to live that life. He's paid the price for me with his own life, his own blood so that I could be something different than I am. That changed my way of thinking. I didn't need legalism. I didn't need the legalistic application of the law to get me to do things. It just became a matter of heart because I realized what Jesus has done for me. And I just want to live for him because of it, the bride price. In, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, 1 Peter 1, 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter says, man, you've been bought. It isn't like the, the bride price that was given by the earthly bridegroom. It isn't about money being paid. It isn't any of that. It's, it's far more than that. It's not material things. It's something far more than that. He paid the bride price. Our groom paid the price for us as his bride with his precious blood. Again, what a life-changing understanding that that is and and what a difference it makes when we begin to fully appreciate what was paid for us to be his bride acts chapter 20 and verse 28 acts 20 and verse 28 therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the holy spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of god which he purchased with his own blood the bride price paid for, for the church, for the believers, for, for the flock of God. The bride price paid for all of us. You know, I think of this verse in particular here as a pastor because this is Paul holding a pastor's conference with the Ephesian elders. One of the last times he's going to be with them and he's warning them and telling them, hey, God has made you overseers to this flock that he's given to your care. Make sure you shepherd it with that understanding that these people have been bought with a price, with the precious blood of Christ, with his own blood. You know, there isn't a day that goes by that as a pastor, I don't remember that. That as I deal with those of you who are a part of this flock, and even when I deal with those of you who are not, that I realize that, you know what? You don't belong to me. You belong to the Lord. And he bought you at the high price of his own blood. Boy, that changes my way of thinking and ministering to people. And you know what? It should change your way of thinking and ministering to people as well. Because you know what? He, the Lord wants to bring you in contact with people to minister to them, to serve them, to, to, to be his representatives to them. But you have to remember that 
They've been bought by him and they belong to him. They are his bride. They're not yours. They're his bride. You know, I remember someone once telling me, and I've shared this with our congregation a number of times because it really stuck in my head, but it was a family that had come to us from another church and, and, and one of the, the, the one spouse was unhappy with what they'd been through at their old church and he began to talk about it over dinner with my wife and I and his wife reached over and she, I saw her put her hand on his arm and she said, you know what, honey? She said, they're the bride of Christ. Maybe we should leave them to him. It's his bride. It's not ours. It's his. He'll deal with his bride. He'll correct his bride when the bride needs correcting. He'll show grace to his bride when the bride needs grace. He'll forgive his bride when his bride needs forgiveness. He'll cleanse his bride when cleansing is needed. Paul told the Ephesian elders, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. You guys, you belong to the Lord. You don't belong to me. You belong to the Lord and he bought you at a high price. Hmm. Well, then there's the marriage contract itself. Uh, the new covenant. That's what it is. In, in our thinking, the new covenant is the marriage contract itself that's being presented by our bridegroom. And it's also described throughout scripture. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 31, and, and, and I'm careful when I deal with Old Testament passages. You guys know that. I love to teach the Old Testament. I think you can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old. But I also understand as you study the Old Testament, there are passages that specifically apply to Israel. Yeah, there may be things in it for us, but but by and large, it may be specifically speaking to God's people, Israel, and not to us. This is one that I believe, even though he's addressing it to Israel, it does speak to us because it talks about this covenant that he's going to make with them one day when, when they come to belief in him, which I believe will happen during the tribulation, when they'll come to belief in him more fully. But you and I are already there. If you're in Christ, if you placed your faith in him, this relationship already exists. But he's speaking of the new covenant covenant here in this passage in Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34. It is the marriage contract that he's wanting to make with his people, them and with us. Listen what it says. I love this. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. It's a marriage contract. He's offering this marriage contract to his people, Israel. He's offered it to you and to me. And, and if you place your faith in Christ, this is what he does. It's a part of it. We enter into this marriage contract with him. And he does exactly what he says here. He writes his law upon our hearts and upon our minds. And he puts it there. And, and we become his people. And we're granted forgiveness of our sins. And, and we now are in a relationship with our bridegroom. You see, again, I think here too, when I think of that, writing that law in my mind, I don't need the legalistic laws anymore because the spirit of the law is now written on my heart and on your heart as believers because we've entered into this with him. But this is the marriage contract. It's here. And then comes the cup. 
the cup, just like in the Jewish wedding, just as the bridegroom would pour this cup of wine for the bride to drink to seal the marriage contract. This is exactly what Jesus did when he poured wine into that cup and he offered it to his disciples and now he offers it to us as he makes it to him. His words describe the significance of the cup in representing the bride price for the marriage contract, which he was now offering to the potential bride, the church, which his disciples drank of and which we continue to drink from in accepting his offer. Here's what it says. Matthew 26. Listen to the words. Matthew 26, verses 28 through 29. Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the new covenant, the, new, the marriage contract, This is the blood of my contract, my covenant with you, which is shed for many for the remissions of sin, the bride price paid. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Yet he leaves us with this more than a ritual, more than a ritual of communion. We break the bread, we drink from the cup, and we're reminded, just as it was here, that we've entered into this contract with him, and this, by doing this, we're marking the fact that, yes, Jesus, we believe. Yes, Jesus, this is our heart. We want to be in relationship with you. We've placed our faith in you, and now you've offered us this marriage contract, and we're entering into it with you as we drink from the cup. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.